0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Back to the divinely ordained two guests today. A.J. Singh Chaudhary will talk about climate change and social exhaustion. And the economist Matthew Adigdo will explain how and why recessions are actually good for public health. Before that, a quick word in the economic situation. There's a longer version of this on my blog, lbo-news.com. It looks like the vibe session is over. The term was coined in June 2022 by multimedia economic analyst Kyla Scanlon, drawing on Keynes, but also the poetry of Charles Bukowski, who defined it as a disconnect between consumer sentiment and economic data. So basically, the economy is doing fine, but people are absolutely not feeling fine. That's the end of her definition. By recent measures, people are starting to feel somewhat finer, if not bounce off the walls, fine. The improvement in collective economic mood is visible in three major attitude surveys from the Conference Board, the University of Michigan, and Gallup. All were showing deep recession-like levels of economic gloom, despite excellent-looking conventional economic indicators, most notably an unemployment rate that's been under 4% for 24 consecutive months. In June 2022, the month scandal announced the term vibe session. The Michigan measure was over 20 points below where it was at the depths of the Great Recession, October 2009, when the unemployment rate was 10%. The reason is almost certainly inflation, which also peaked in June 2022 at almost 9%. In October 2009, there was literally no inflation. Prices are actually down slightly from a year earlier. The lesson here is that people really hate inflation. According to a morning consult poll, 63% of respondents prefer prices going down to their income going up. And now that inflation is down, attitudes are looking up. Wild stuff. And now some longer-term concerns, the climate crisis and the human capacity to deal with it. My first guest, A.J. Singh Chaudhary, has a new book called The Exhausted of the Earth, Politics in a Burning World, published by Repeater. The title is an allusion to Frantz Fanon's classic, The Wretched of the Earth, an analysis of the psychopolitics of colonization and resistance to it, published in 1961. For Chaudhary, the central feature of life today is our sense of exhaustion, a product of the stresses of life under capitalism and the impending climate catastrophe. Aside from having written this book, Chaudhry is the executive director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, which is, in its own words, an interdisciplinary teaching and research institute that offers critical community-based education in the humanities and social sciences through both in-person and online courses. A.J. Singh Chaudhry. Sometimes people say recklessly that uh, climate is something that affects all of us, implying that we're all in this together. You open the book by saying we're not all in this together. <laughs> um, yeah, could, could you describe our lack of togetherness?
1: Absolutely. Oh, it's a great place to start, actually, because it is, it is kind of one of the pivot points of, of the whole book. This is obviously particularly common in, I think, both liberal circles politically, but more broadly, just sort of almost intuitively in a lot of climate research uh, circles and things like this, that it's just like, oh, obviously, something as universal as. Human climate uh, as our ecological niche, et cetera, et cetera. Well, surely this must be something that hits everyone the same way and touches on everyone's life. Something we can finally all agree on. It's like this sort of perfect liberal problem. Um, and the problem is, of course, that once you start digging into it, you realize, oh, that's not true at all. And it's not simply, and, and also the dividing line, as I as I talk about in there, it's not simply, I think, a way again, a lot of people imagine it's like, oh, there's like doing climate and not doing climate right there's climate policy if you will and then there's sort of denialism and do nothing Um, but rather when you don't see that when you actually look at it in reality when you look at it in in the real world you see that there's different kinds of uh, degrees of measure and there's different kinds of speeds of of measure right so such that you actually end up clustering your two groups right Um, one group that has a lot of interest uh, in immediate climate mitigation and adaptation measures um, in the interest of the vast majority. Um, That's very expensive, cuts into profits pretty bad. And uh, you have another group that's like, well, we can probably get by, we can blow past two, we can probably blow past three, it's okay. Again, you don't find, this is not like wackadoodle only like far right folks. This is the Bill Gates position. This is the, well, who's the really famous economist? Nordhaus. This is the Nordhaus position, right? This is not like, you know, crazy people off the ends of the earth. But what they're saying is like, yeah, we do need to do this, but we'll do it slowly and we'll only go X amount of far. And yeah, you might lose a billion people or something, but what's the big deal?
0: One out of eight, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we One out eight seven. people
1: on the planet is displaced or killed. That leaves seven. Sort of, you know? And there's sort of a shrug. And they're like, that almost just covers unemployment. You know, it's like, I mean, I hate to put it in such ugly terms, but it, it does often come across, not just come across that way. That is the actual policy.
0: Yeah. I had uh, William Nordhaus for intermediate macroeconomics in college. So, Oh, wow. Away, how yes. is
1: he in person?
0: You know, he's an economist. Decent Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, is in my right wing days, and he had us do this Keynesian model of how to run an economy. And uh, I ad- adhered to my right wing politics and ended up with a like twenty percent unemployment rate and twenty percent inflation rate. But,
1: <laughs> Mazel Talk. <tov. laughs>
0: he, he wrote the model, not me. So you
1: know, yeah, no, no, so let say like uh, I think that's slightly better performance in the EU. But yeah. yes,
0: okay. So what do the billionaires who are outfitting their postal apocalyptic bunkers tell us? <laughs>
1: I mean, what they say is, I mean, the two different modes of this. There's the, there's the kind of wacky mode. And a lot of it, I talk about this in the book, actually. A lot of that is bullshitty, right? When you do get the like billionaire bunker thing. I mean, there's different degrees of billionaire bunker bullshit. I try not to personalize things too much, but I also know people, it, it's really helpful to personalize things. So I often think about this as a little Elon Musk, right? He's kind of a, a joke version of, of it, I would say, right? Um, he's just like, yeah, we're gonna make some magic check, and we're going to Mars, and he kind of doesn't really know how to do either of those things. The more realistic versions are the things you get from the sort of Gateses and the uh, Bezoses, and what they will say is really interesting stuff. I have this whole section of the book on Bezos where he he's like, yeah, actually, it probably is not possible to do capitalism the way we currently do it on the planet as it is, we could probably do some other things, but they would so sharply restrict our freedom and our possibility, right? He says it, I'm trying to remember his exact phrasing, it's like dynamism and something is his phrase. And he's like, oh, surely you want that. Surely you don't want what he calls rationing. And he's basically like, you know, gives you the classic sort of Soviet breadline kind of imagery, right?
0: Like, that's very funny given how he rations the paychecks of his employees.
1: Yeah, it's pretty funny for Bezos. But, you know, he says, oh, I'm not involved in Amazon anymore. And his whole new thing is this sort of space company. Uh, not because he thinks we need the space rocks or he thinks we necessarily can't do ecological sustainability on Earth. He uh, makes a case, and it's really interesting that he's like, don't you want to live life just like we live it right now? Well, if so, you got to go my way—the way these other guys want to go. That's gray. That's bad. That's evil.
0: Well, yeah, that's one way to put it. You say climate change is not the apocalypse. Now, given how much I hear claiming that it is, <laughs> oh yeah, what is it then? What, if it's not the—that's a really
1: good question. I mean, for one thing, um, especially for. I do this a lot in the book, you already know this, like this sort of like for specialist readers, for non-specialist readers. For like specialist readers, uh, I don't mean that there is not some degree by which uh, things get so bad that it wouldn't actually start putting existential things on the, on the table. It just seems that is highly unlikely. There are policies and practices, I actually don't care as much about policies as I do about practices, um, in place that likely make that sort of doomsday scenario very unlikely. Furthermore, the, the doomsday scenario, apocalyptic stuff, uh, I tend to, I mean, yes, it is, it is deeply depoliticizing. Deep uh, I think that is sort of a bad way of going about things, uh, but I don't just mean this as a sort of rhetorical gesture or as or sort of like an ideological gambit. I actually just think it's not true. Uh, and in fact, it's, so, it's not true in a way that should make listeners very angry Because it's not so much if you were just being told, hey, we're all going to die tomorrow, right? Uh, There's like a million movies about this, right? Like you're all going to die tomorrow. What do you do? I don't know. Go on a shopping spree, have a lot of sex, do something fun, right? But actually, and you know, what's that movie? I hate it so much. Uh, don't look up. Right. As if like it's an asteroid crash and it's coming at us and we can see it coming slowly and we're like, oh, we should do something about that. And then we don't. Right. That That is like maybe the worst possible metaphor for climate change that is out there. Right. <laughs> like it's something that's already happening. It is unlikely to hit some point where like in the near future where like, I feel like people want fire to rain from the sky or something, you know, something like really biblical to happen. Whereas more likely it's like kind of what you see happening all the time. And that's only if you restrict yourself to we're, we restrict ourselves for the moment to ecological stuff, not like the sort of social stuff that comes around it or through it. But like, you know, people notice, right? People notice inland hurricanes. People notice wildfires all year round. People notice, you know, uh, in New York. Actually, is this still true? Uh, Because I've been out of the city for the past several weeks. Uh, We still, it's like 700 something, 800 days since the last snowfall greater than an inch. Or did we finally break that?
0: There was a little bit of snow. uh, Oh, good,
1: good. Barely more than an inch. I've been out of town. But yeah, so we broke that. But people noticed that it stopped snowing. And now I'm just talking about American examples not even getting into things like, you know, flooding in places like Bangladesh or Micronesia basically being like, we need to shift our entire population out this, out this island. You know, like those are more extreme cases. But this is happening all the time. So people know it.
0: It is extraordinary how over the last 10 years or so, these once in a lifetime events have become routine. In ways that weren't necessarily yeah, the case exactly. 10 years ago, but now people just cannot avoid staring this in the face.
1: Yeah, but also, and to bring it back to your apocalypse point, it, That all of that is, it, just imagine that, but more and more. Imagine the subsequent or the consequence, not really subsequent or consequent, the you know, the, the interrelated social crises with all of that more and more. That is more likely than the sky falling, right? And this to me is actually both probably makes people's blood boil when you realize it. You're like, oh, actually, it's not like we're all going to die. It's some people are going to do pretty good. Other people, the most, are going to do really bad. That, to me, is an animating political impetus. That's a dividing line. That's something you can
0: fight. Okay, let's talk about um, some psychological aspects of this. The title is an allusion to Fanon, and I think it applies both to Earth and us. We're both exhausted. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's correct. That's <laughs> yes. exactly the argument.
0: And Phanon was, among many other things, interesting because he worked at the intersection of the political and the psychiatric. We process this as a matter for individuals. So how, how can we merge these levels of analysis? What, what's going on at these mental health crises, which have, you know seem to have become ubiquitous, with the climate crisis and the social crisis that uh, comes alongside it?
1: Oh, this is a super great question. Thank you so much. Yeah, obviously the title is an allusion to Fanon. I don't think he has every answer for us, but it, for me, I was looking for like, you know, in fact, one of the main points of the book, in fact, is that a lot of our old models don't really serve us that well. Uh, they inform us and they haven't like gone away, but we do regularly need to sort of think about politics specific to this moment of, of climate change. Um, that said, Fanon is very close for exactly the reason that you mentioned that, which is that, yes, we do seem to have these boiling over crises. I broadly uh, characterize as exhaustion, but they include lots and lots of, as you were talking about, sort of mental health issues, physical like, fatigue, but also all kinds of other, even like aesthetics and things like this. One of the things that, as you pointed out, Fanon is very famous for is saying, look, as a doctor... I treat people as an individual, but I know that their root causes of many of their problems are the people I'm treating, right? he's treating, when we're reading his clinical writings, we're mostly reading the Algeria stuff. But in there, you can also find examples where he's treating uh, French uh, patients, the other side, essentially. So one of the things he's dealing with, though, is he's like, look, I know the social situation is either A, causing this, or at the very least, B, exasperating. And that there comes a point psychologically, and I think this is very, this is quite novel for for non, although I think it's under the hood in a lot of other thinkers, that there comes a point where it becomes sort of psychologically unbearable. I borrow this phrase from him all the time, this like urgency and immediacy phrase. And that to me is so perfect for uh, thinking about climate, because as these sort of effects become more obvious and the scale of the problem becomes so obvious, as it dawns on people, all of a sudden they feel that urgency, that immediacy. This comes to sort of a boiling point. The thing that I think makes Finan though also helpful, but right, he's not the only person who said environment, economy, uh, society, individual. Right? He's not the only person on Earth who said that. He is though someone who had a very unique problem. Like he couldn't, he didn't have the sort of luxury, but he doesn't have the luxury of being like. Hmm, maybe my paranoid schizophrenic patient actually is like a secret like poet spirit seeker who can understand the truths of the world because Fanon's like got like his questions are much more prosaic he's like can I hand this man a gun the answer <laughs> is no this guy is like seeing people who aren't there you definitely cannot hand this man a gun so he has a both a very like utopian part of his practice, a very political realist, as I put it in the book, a part of his practice was just like a colonial power will not give up without a fight. And then he also has this uh, very pragmatic side, right? Where it's, also, it's also a very caring side, which people often miss in phenomena, right? Where he's like, I can't just valorize or um, make some sort of glorious romantic proclamation about my patients because, A, I need them to be functional to work in a political context, but also, B, I am sending them back out to become traumatized again.
0: I'm speaking with A.J. Singh Chaudhry, author of The Exhausted of the Earth, just out from Repeater Books. Of course, then Fanon had a view of violence, which is uh, not necessarily fashionable uh, in some circles, but (laughs) (laughs) almost a therapeutic view of violence. Yeah. But uh, how does violence fit into your analysis of the situation? Like, you know, the the blow up a pipeline. uh Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. I mean, I'll say two things. One, one actually... Connects so well to the previous question, so I really appreciate it. The Fanon sort of profit of violence or phenom, uh violence, even the therapeutic moment in Wretched, which is the most famous, I think, is actually like a stepwise measure, right? He says in the end, right, that is a like passing cathexis. Right? It doesn't really work. And in the end, in fact, much more difficult things are going to be required, but you can't like skip the step. And for him, the violence thing actually is much more rooted, and this is not fashionable to say, but I actually don't understand why, uh, is much more rooted in his political realism, where he's just like, I have yet to see these guys give up anything real anything real without a fight. So he just doesn't think in many situations that is possible. He says maybe in some, and he says maybe symbolically in a few places, but mostly this is just boring sh- where it's like, no, they're not just going to up and leave. Um, but that's Fanon. In the sort of contemporary uh, situation, it's really funny you bring up Andreas and Andreas' mom's uh, argument, because uh, he also uses a Fanonian reference in How to Blow a Pipeline. Uh, but it is the more therapeutic one. And I, I do think it's important. He sees a sort of a, sort of like a rallying cry, which I think is like, I, I see that too. But I don't see like, I think that's very different, I think, from our approaches, or not very different, but is. They're you know, complementary, but mine is slightly different. Is I don't necessarily see like blowing up a pipeline as the most useful thing. In fact, things that I think might freak people out more are things that I think might be useful. Like you know, property damage that is more class-based and more punitive in a political sense, less so, I don't think that you're ever going to like have a large enough movement or a large enough, certainly a large enough movement with arms and that kind of power to like blow up all the world. Like, I don't even know why you would do like blow up all the world's fossil fuel infrastructure that has to be dismantled by governments. And that's going to be like, that's going to be a massive political project. The question is, how are you going to make it happen? And the answer to me on that is, you're fighting at as, uh, on the political terrain, less so on this sort of we're going to get rid of the pipelines that way. So I agree with with his argument, but actually I take it much further in many ways, which is that when we're looking at change of this scale, and it's quite funny. Uh, it is the most, many people have cited this, but right, it is. The, it would be the largest transformation. Even if it, like, I make this point many times in the book, doesn't have to be. You can call it eco socialism, but we don't really have to do that if we think the word is going to scare people or whatever. It, I mean, it doesn't scare me, but maybe it scares someone. It doesn't really matter to me. But the point being, like, you could still have some version of capitalism. It's not the green capitalism they're peddling in the universe, more like some kind of like hemmed in new eco-NEP or like some new in new eco-market socialism. But the point is to get to there is the monetary equivalent of the abolition of slavery. I actually remember an article that you wrote a long time ago uh, when Piketty first came. Not that long ago, wasn't it? (laughs)
0: It's it's longer ago than we might think. No,
1: no, no. For me, that still feels recent. Yeah. Not true for other folks. But right where you're like, actually, that's the largest destruction and transfer of wealth in human history. And like, wow, as Piketty records, and he's totally correct. So we're dealing with a situation that all of its historical antecedents and even much more mollified stuff. Um, I talk about a bunch of different versions of this in the book, have all had some kind of violent component in it. Does this mean we should all do the blank key thing? And it's just like a sort of like grab a c- couple dudes with guns and make it happen? No, absolutely not. But I think to, that there is a sort of pernicious, for, to me, it's actually a Cold War thing. It, it, it's a hangover from the era of security studies, the, the birth of IR and all that stuff that like this whole like, oh, nonviolent resistance exclusively only works and everything else is bullshit. That's just not true. That's basically American government propaganda. Um, and the the most cursory glance at the historical record just shows how untrue that is. So again, the argument is not like, ah, so let's turn off the like electoral switch or let's turn off the like local mutual aid switch, or let's turn off all these other things that could be going on and turn on the violence switch. Rather, it's like, no, we actually have to use the old slogan, right? This is my post-COVID brand, I'm so sorry what's it called? A multiplicity of tactics, multiplicity of uh, whatever it is. All tactics should be on the table. And the question is only strategically, like what's going to work and what's not. You see people fight this out all the time over like really small bore stuff. Like, you know, when I think just this weekend, right, someone did one of these throwing the paint on the Mona Lisa case or something, right?
0: Soup. I think it was soup.
1: Was it soup? Sorry. whatever. The soup's so funny. And to me, like, I see people fighting about this, like, as if it's a huge thing. I'm like, A, they're not actually destroying any art. But B, the question about it is never, should never be this kind of... uh, Liberalism has, like, warped our brains in some ways. Right? It's never... Is there like some Kantian, like categorical imperative about whether or not this is good? And I see like leftists engaged in this and it blows my heart. Actually, I shouldn't say leftists, Marxists, like specifically Marxists engaged in this. I'll be like, are you guys kidding me? Like, we don't believe that. The question is, is it working? Is it like, you know, is it alienating people? Is it not alienating people? And actually, those things are really hard to uh, measure. Is it galvanizing folks? Is it is it bringing people into the movement? Like these are things that are the questions we should be asking about small bore stuff like that, but also things like sabotage. And then when I get into like violence, violence, to me, it's it's often a question of that's just going to happen. Whether it happens in the sort of spillover way you see with riots and things in this way, or in reverse, right? And I use a lot of cases from the global south, places like Tunisia, places like Bolivia, where eventually, if you're doing enough of the other stuff, the state or private. Uh, corporations, right, will come along and be like, yeah, we're sending dudes with guns at you. And then what are you going to do? You're not just going to walk up with them with with posies. You're going to actually do what the Bolivians did, which is like take up positions, take roads, cut them off, cut off supply chains. I mean, then you're in the game.
0: Let's, for the last few minutes of this, I'll talk some about the politics. It seems like you see the exhausted as the constituency for some kind of radical climate politics. The problem is that in my experience, they tend to have little hope for the future and seem resigned to inevitable doom. So how do you imagine getting them off the couch to organize?
1: I mean, there's two points to this. One is that when I use that term, I don't necessarily like think or care if other people like organize under that terminology. Uh, I see, ex- when I was looking at this material, which I've been looking at for so long, exhaustion just comes up so frequently, not just in this material, but in all kinds of sociological uh, research, you can just sort of feel it in the air in some ways. I hate to get so vibesy. And in some places, this does, in fact, already things that I would call in the exhausted or, or, or in exhaustion There are political formations of it in many parts of the world. I would say even in parts of the U.S., although uh, in the global north, but smaller. So on the one hand, part of the answer is like, well, in some places, people are already on the move. I give a lot of examples in, again, mostly from the South in the book. In the North, though, I think you're totally right, and in some parts of the South as well, uh, there's tons of people who this, I think, category would get blurred more classically for your Marxist listeners, which I imagine are many, right, with something like alienation and particularly like the form of alienation that leads to sort of political innervation, which is sometimes only a hair away from the classic sort of more formal Marxist definition. And I think that is a major problem. And like, there's two things that are really vital for this. One is very boring, uh, which is we need organizational forms uh, to capture bubbling discontent or to at least have a place for it to go and resonate. I use a lot of these sociological surveys in, in, the, in the book to talk about how there actually is Huge amounts of social discontent in, this, in the world right now. We're going through one of the largest waves of it, like ever. It's just that we have almost no formal institutions, whether that be everything from political parties, to union stuff that I think lefties often think about, internationals, which many lefties think about, but even this sort of more like mundane, shit, like social clubs for for people to go to that aren't, you know, preaching Jordan Peterson. Beliefs this kind of uh, spaces and institutions that can support um, and capture that kind of uh, general discontent, which I think you can see really everywhere. And the flip side actually is part of that violence argument, which is that doing all of these political things, allowing, uh, when, when I see political violence or politics that is aimed at highlighting who and what, is in fact the cause of your exhaustion and ecological exhaustion, that to me is super important. Because as long as people think of climate as this giant edifice, that's this, you know, what's, I don't want to even use the terminology, this giant edifice or whatever object that's like beyond your comprehension, it's too, uh, like that is um, immobilizing. Once you start sticking a name to that, once you start sticking, you're like, oh, or a class. And you know, I talk a lot about class politics and this. And it's like, you have to be like, no, 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 it's not some, it's not all of us, right? Bringing it back to your first question, right? Nor is it like the revenge of nature. Rather, it's that guy, right? Like, you are tired, you are having a Day, right? I make a joke in the book, right? The The climate has a case of the Mondays. Uh, the climate has a case of the Mondays, not because of you, bad, bad, silly person. No, the climate has a case of Mondays so that Amazon's profit margins are just a little bit bigger, so that JP Morgan can just, you know, round up a little bit this year, um, so that we can keep things like, you know, flagging productivity, growth rates, yada, 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 just a little bit higher than they were before. And that's why you're having a social crisis, why you're having an ecological crisis. That's why uh, economic uh, situation is so difficult for you. Like, yes, capitalism is at the root cause. Uh, unfortunately, we probably don't have time to make a full capitalism replacement in the scale and time needed for climate mitigation and adaptation, but we do need extreme measures very fast of like almost, again, historically you'd have to go back to the 19th century to see uh, parallels of that kind of level of transformation, um, and that's what we need to be aiming at right now.
0: That was A.J. Singh Chaudhary, author of The Exhausted of the Earth, published by Repeater Books and director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. My name is Doug Henwood, and the program is Behind the News, back after a musical break. some of surreal chemist by stereolab. No mendacity here. Next, recessions in public health. You might think that economic downturns would encourage premature death by propagating impoverishment and stress. I thought that until I read a new paper by four authors, Amy Finkelstein, Matthew noto Frank Schilbach, and Jonathan Zhang, that found quite the opposite. According to the author's research, the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, called great because it was so long and deep, actually resulted in a significant decline in mortality. And even more counterintuitively, the effect was most pronounced in the hardest hit areas. Here to explain is one of the authors, Matt Noto-Wedigdo, professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. I'd always thought that uh, recessions made people sick and more likely to die. Is that just colloquial understanding or is there any uh, earlier uh, work that uh, found that?
2: There's work going back several decades finding that during recessions, you know, perhaps surprisingly, they seem good for your health. It seems like when the unemployment is high, it looks like the mortality rates are surprisingly low. Now, that's not true for the people that lose their jobs. So if you lose your job, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that that's very bad for your health. But the truth is most people don't lose their jobs during a recession. And for them, it looks like their health seems to improve.
0: So for the 95 or 97% of the population that doesn't lose a job, um, they're better off.
2: Yeah. At least in terms of their health status, you know, not in terms of their income and consumption, of course.
0: Right. And used surveyed over 300 experts uh, last spring and found that most thought, 50% thought rather, that uh, the Great Recession increased mortality and just half that many thought it would decrease. Where did they get the idea from? The economists that we surveyed,
2: those who thought that it increased, I think, were just probably reasoning from common sense. Those that thought it would decrease, I think, had in mind, we created this word cloud of what they, what they had in mind when they were giving their answers. And they were influenced by some earlier work by an economist who's, who's at UVA, Christopher Room. What Room did in a series of papers is he found this correlation between the state's unemployment rate and the mortality rate. And that correlation went in the opposite way that you might have expected
0: wow it's amazing this hasn 't made its way into popular thinking though okay, so how did you go about the study? Uh, the areas of observation, time scales, earth the data what was, what was the technique
2: The study started in in a way as just well health economists knew about this work by by Chris Room that I just mentioned, and, and I think we had in our mind the spirit of replication you know is it still true today, and would it still be true during the biggest recession during my lifetime, the Great Recession and so we really set out to just answer the same question that he would tried to answer, you know, decades ago, but, but using more modern methods. And what was really useful for us, you know, in terms of looking at the Great Recession was that different parts of the country were affected very differently. It's not that long ago. So maybe, maybe we still remember this. You know, there was a housing boom and housing bust. There was manufacturing, construction hit really hard. So some parts of the country were hit really hard by the Great Recession. And some parts of the country, particularly in the middle of the country, you know, weren't really affected that, that much at all. They, they didn't really have much of a recession. And so those are the comparisons that we're making in the paper.
0: Where'd you get the data? How wide was your scope? How, much, how many data points are there? We used a lot of different data sets
2: to try to make progress on this. So we, you know, mortality records come from the CDC. Almost anyone can get it with just a little bit of effort. You ask, ask for permission and download the data. And that, that gives us the numerator in our mortality rates, or the mortality rate is how many people die in a given year, as a share of how many people were alive at the beginning of the year. And so we collected that county by county from the CDC, you can then get overall mortality rates for county population, as well as for different demographic subgroups by gender, education, race, age, and so on. And so we collected all of that for the time period was a couple of years before the start of the Great Recession. So the Great Recession started in 2007 ended in 2009. So we started in 2003. And we went Pretty much as 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 far as we we thought it made sense. So because the Great Recession, one of the things that, that people remarked was that it was a it was a pretty long lasting recession. Took took the economy a long time to recover. So we followed.
0: Yeah, I mean the recovery barely felt like a recovery for a couple of years.
2: People called it a jobless recovery because it took so long for employment to get back to where it was before the start of the Great Recession.
0: What other economic data did you look at?
2: Well, we we also collected data from Medicare, and the reason we did that is that we wanted to look at well. Suppose we were going to replicate the, the findings as, as turned out to be the case. We, we, we did find that areas that were harder hit by the Great Recession, meaning they had bigger increases in unemployment, those places seemed to benefit in terms of they had relative declines in the mortality rate, even though they were being harder hit by the Great Recession. So we collected a bunch of data from Medicare to try to understand you know, a little bit about the mechanism behind this result. Was it because you know, maybe you have more time to go to the doctor? you're not working as much. Maybe maybe you use more or different types of healthcare. So we tried to look into that. We tried to look at whether people were more likely to go to a nursing home or being treated better in nursing homes. And we didn't find any evidence for any of these things. Uh, but these are some ideas that we had in the back of our mind to try to understand what could be driving this result.
0: Now, you say that the hardest hit areas had been doing better than average before the recession, economically. That's the area where you had the, the housing boom, which that was the, the preface to the bust. And their mortality was falling at a slower rate than elsewhere, which is an interesting finding too. Um, what does that tell you? Ideally, what we would like is we, we'd like places to
2: have mortality rates that are trending similarly for several years until the Great Recession hits. We, we would ideally like the, the Great, Great Recession you know, in the language of a natural experiment. We'd like some places to be hard hit and some places to be less hard hit starting in 2007, but kind of be trending similarly in the years leading up to that. Now, it's not, it's not perfect for the reason that you just mentioned. It's not perfect because of the fact that there was a housing boom um, that preceded the housing bust. But you know, we didn't find that that had a big impact uh, on our results. The big impact was that as soon as the Great Recession hits, mortality rates start to diverge between places and they start to decline more in the places where unemployment went up the most.
0: And what about uh, patterns of demographics and causes of death? What did you find there?
2: We looked at lots of differences, as I, as I try to allude to in the CDC data. We looked by gender. Looks like men and women are similarly affected. We looked by race and ethnicity. You start to run into smaller samples. But as best as we can tell, also saw similarities there. When I present this paper to academic audiences, I describe the results as as having a certain equi-proportionality by age, meaning that all of the age groups look similarly affected in terms of having the same percent reduction in the mortality rate. Now, since the mortality rates are higher for older people, it's maybe a bigger deal for them. But even across age groups, we saw saw similarity in that dimension. The one difference we saw in, in terms of demographics is we saw that for individuals with lower levels of education, so that would be a high school degree or high school dropout, didn't go to college, didn't get a college degree, those individuals, whether male or female, uh, seem to actually be responsible for most of the mortality benefits from recession. So the recessions seem to be particularly beneficial for people with lower levels of education. And what I think is interesting about that is that that's also the groups that are harder hit economically. You know, we know from lots of other prior work and macroeconomics that people with lower levels of education are harder hit. They're more likely to experience decreases in income. So it's, it's maybe even particularly surprising that those are the groups that also seem to benefit in terms of their health
0: outcomes. Well, there also overlap some with uh, the uh, deaths of despair demographic. Yeah. People with less education. What's going on there? Because you'd think they're generally going to be worse off and uh, with little uh, little cushion.
2: Yeah, and I and I don't want to deny I, I don't want to you know deny the narrative of deaths of despair. Because again, for the people who are actually experiencing dislocation, uh, mass layoffs, there is a lot of evidence that 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 does cause despair and it, it does lead to early death and certain diseases. And so I, I don't want to deny that that's occurring. I think what's interesting about the results in our paper is that those individuals are a part of the larger communities that we're studying. You know, we're looking at all these groups of counties that are hard hit. And when you look, when you take that broader perspective, on average, uh, people benefit in terms of their mortality rates falling. And so what that means is for the people who are not directly experiencing the economic despair, uh, recessions, you know, turn out to be good for your health. That's what we find consistent with what a lot of other health economics uh, research papers had found before us.
0: And we didn't make this clear earlier, but you're looking at things that are called commuting zones, right? Yeah. So the, the unit of analysis, uh, as I would
2: describe it, is, is the local labor market. And what we do in the paper is we define local labor markets as being commuting zones. Commuting zones are groups of counties that cover the entire United States. And commuting zones, I think, are useful because they're, they're defined based on commuting patterns, as the name suggests. And so they're intended to approximate uh, a labor market. These are where people would be willing to drive to commute from their home to a job. And so what we're doing ultimately in the empirical analysis in the paper is we're comparing across commuting zones that either experience the Great Recession severely or they don't experience the Great Recession much at all.
0: What happened with suicide? You'd think people facing economic stress might uh, contemplate it. What what did you see there? We didn't
2: see much of a positive or negative impact on suicide. We looked at liver disease, which you might think of as a a downstream consequence of recession-induced alcoholism. And if anything, we found... Decreases there rather than increases, as you might have hypothesized. And so, you know, this is a sense in which recessions don't cause an overall increase in deaths of despair. Uh, If anything, it looks like it goes in the other direction.
0: Uh, What about morbidity, sickness? You know, not just death. This was harder for us to study because you know we don't
2: we don't have as good of data on this. You know, as I alluded to, we we get comprehensive death records from the CDC. That's very well measured. So we can measure mortality rates overall and across different types of groups. When you want to look at morbidity, so, you know, what kind of diseases do you have? What kinds of health behaviors are you engaging in? We have to rely on surveys. And it's just inherently noisier and the sample sizes are smaller. We tried our best to look at it. And as, as best as we can tell, uh, if anything, there's a, there's a decrease in morbidity going alongside the, the decrease in mortality. But I, I just want people to know that those, I think, results are, are more suggestive and more tentative.
0: I'm speaking with the economist Matthew noto Wadigdo co-author of a highly counterintuitive paper on how recessions extend life expectancy. What was the relation of these effects to the change in unemployment? Did a higher increase in unemployment have a higher effect or what was the relation?
2: One way to quantify it is that we find is that for every one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate in your commuting zone, uh, that leads to a 0.5% reduction in the mortality rate. And again, I, I told you that that was similar across across age groups. Now, 0.5% doesn't sound like a lot perhaps, but you know, some commuting zones had four to five percentage point increases in unemployment during the Great Recession. So for those commuting zones, the mortality rates on average uh, fell by two to 3%, which you know, translates into a, a, a large number of life years gained, particularly for elderly people in those commuting zones that were, uh, that were most hardest hit.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say these numbers, I guess they're not massive, but they're really far from trivial
2: yeah well, you know that's that's the last part of the paper. There' been a lot of work prior to our paper estimating these correlations uh, between the unemployment rate and the mortality rate. What I felt like a lot of the research didn't do is it, it didn't do a good job giving you a sense of the magnitude. you know, how much does it matter that there's a two two percent, three percent reduction in, in, in mortality? I don't think people naturally have a good way of thinking about whether that's large or small. And so what we did, um, you know, which I, which I quite like at, at the end of our of our paper, is we translate those mortality rate reductions into changes in life expectancy uh, across the age distribution. Uh, and what we find is that the people who are older, when the Great Recession hits, they get a bigger uh, predicted increase in their life expectancy than younger workers. And then what we do once we have those results is we try to put a dollar value on that. And uh, this is what economists love to do. You know, We love to put a value on everything, even things that you might not think you could put a dollar value on. But, but the, the, you know the federal government does this all the time. <laughs>
0: V-S-L-Y, is that the abbreviation? Correct. So We didn't invent
2: this concept, but many economists use it, and actually lots of people in the federal government use it too when they're trying to make difficult decisions or doing cost-benefit analysis, is you, you come up with a value of a life year. And maybe we, you know, we could all think about this subjectively, is how much we'd be willing to pay for an extra year of life? Uh, and you know, As you can imagine, there's no consensus on the right number, but the federal government picks out numbers when they're making, for example, a transportation safety investment are the lives saved and the life years saved worth the investment? Uh, so you got to have some number in mind when you're making that calculation. And so all, all we do is we take those numbers and we just apply them to the life years saved because of the recession. And what's interesting about that exercise is then you can compare it to, well, what's the economic damage from a recession in terms of the unemployment and the consumption de- decreases and the income decreases? And you know this gets complicated, but you know I think a fair summary of, of what we're doing in this part of the paper is that they turn out to be pretty similar in, in terms of the orders of magnitude that we're talking about. And so, you know, recessions are, are terrible for the economy. People lose their job, their income goes down. Uh, but for some people, uh, their life expectancy goes up. And if you try to put dollar values on this, you might be surprised at, at, the, at the fact that they're kind of in the same ballpark. Uh, and that was a really fun, uh, fun part of the paper because we hadn't seen uh, people put the numbers together in that way to try to get an appreciation of, well, how much does it matter that recessions are good for your health?
0: Your scope of research went several years beyond the end of the Great Recession. So what happened in the uh, the years after as recovery came, uh, took hold?
2: That's something that we've, we we really tried to push hard on because because of the fact that the Great Recession uh, was this jobless recovery. So unemployment recovered, but people remained out of the labor force for a very long time and, and employment didn't recover to its pre-Great Recession level for many, many years. And so one of the things we did is we, we compared across places that their employment recovered by, let's say, 10 years after the end of the Great Recession. And there were other commuting zones where even 10 years later, employment was still lower than it was before the start of the Great Recession. And one of the things we, we found is that in both of those areas, the mortality rates remained improved 10 years later, whether or not the labor market had recovered or not. And our interpretation of those results, that combination of results, our interpretation is that there's looks like there's a pretty persistent effect of the impact of the Great Recession itself. And that effect persists even after the labor market has recovered. That is, there's still a mortality benefit to the Great Recession, even once the labor market's gotten back to normal. It's a persistent impact of a temporary negative economic shock. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting. You know, again, I don't think we know why. We don't have a, we don't have a mechanism that we were able to nail down. Um, but it does look like these mortality benefits, they're not transitory. Uh, it looks like they last quite a while, at least five or 10 years after the Great Recession has ended.
0: Okay. Now, of course, the big question is why? One might think less stress from working, more time to go out for a run. What are the reasons?
2: I mean, I, I wish I had a better answer. I, I tell my graduate students, look, research is hard. Uh, we tried our best. We looked at a, a lot of different explanations. We ruled out a lot of explanations. I've already talked about one explanation that we don't rule out, and and I think very well could play some some role is uh, is a role for pollution. This wasn't our idea. Uh, other researchers have have suggested this link before, but you know we bring some new data into it, and I think our results are are pretty convincing. So the you know the the first step of this causal chain is not very complicated. It's just that when there's a recession economic activity declines, and economic activity tends to generate pollution. Uh, this is the particulate matter that you know, we, we all had to deal with uh, in parts of the United States when there were the Canadian wildfires this past summer. There's a lot of evidence, I think, accumulating in environmental science and in environmental economics that, that this air pollution, this, this fine particulate matter, uh, really is bad for your health um, and can cause pretty sharp increases in mortality for people who aren't in great health. And so if you put these pieces together, well, well, during a recession, if pollution goes down because economic activity goes down and pollution is bad for your health, then that could explain some of the reasons why recessions look like they're good for your health, as it's being mediated through this recession-induced decline in air pollution. And so I think we have some suggestive evidence that that's some of what's going on. It's not a majority of the story, but it's consistent with some of this work that just air, air pollution is a lot more dangerous than I think most people uh, appreciate, and that, that's why we should be worried about these wildfires if they keep happening, because uh, they could be they can be very serious in terms of uh,
0: impacting lots of people's health. Yeah, I mean, uh, climate gets all the attention, but those little particulates are a problem too. Right?
2: Well, you know what I learned is it's it's the small particulates, not the large particulates, that matter the most. I, yeah, knowing nothing about the, the the biological science here, I might have guessed the opposite, but it's really the particularly fine particulate matter that seems to have the biggest impacts on mortality, for, particularly for people with heart disease, for example.
0: Now, some broader conclusions one should or shouldn't draw from this. Um, how much should we re- rethink our view of recessions as bad? I mean, it might seem callous to the jobless, worried about eviction or foreclosure, but... Um...
2: To my surprise, I've presented this at a couple of Federal Reserve banks, and the audiences are all, often very, very engaged because I think they, they would like to think about this as one of the factors that, say... Federal Reserve should think about when thinking about the overall economic cost of a recession. You know, maybe that cost isn't as big as we might have thought because of these health benefits. I think I have a somewhat different perspective, which is just, you know, to the extent that some of it comes through things like pollution, well, ideally, we'd like to get these health benefits without having a recession. That's obviously the best case scenario. And, you know, we have lots of tools of thinking about regulating air pollution in a way that could achieve the pollution reductions without having a recession that to me seems like the obvious way of getting the best of both worlds is just being a little bit more strict in terms of how we regulate air pollution and maybe given where we are where we are right now in the united states we, sh- we should be thinking more about that again given this accumulating evidence of of just how dangerous air pollution is for for people uh, that aren't in great health
0: richer countries generally have longer life expectancies than poorer ones so ours, ours doesn't score so well on that measure but um how does the cycle so different from that that broad trend?
2: The way that I think about this is that there's a steady amount of air pollution regulation that we have, but when air pollution goes down because of a recession, it's a way of learning it's another way of learning about the health consequences of air pollution and I think our paper could be viewed as providing additional evidence that there is some meaningful health consequence of air pollution that we should all be thinking more about, but maybe I should also say that I don't think pollution is most of what's going on. And unfortunately, I don't think we learn exactly what's going on. (laughs) People have given us lots of suggestions. You know, maybe it's the stress of work. Maybe it's being able to spend more time with your family. Maybe your family checks in on you more when there's a recession. They have more time to come by and check on you and take care of you. Maybe you feel less lonely. I, I just think we don't know the answer.
0: Well, and there was a large impact on older people who weren't working. So it That's be exactly there.
2: right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so you know, I, I think maybe, maybe a, a broader lesson that you could take away from our, from our study is that economic growth is good, and, and, and I'm a card-carrying economist. I'm all for economic growth. Uh, but sometimes there are some downsides that go along with economic growth uh, that could potentially be some negative health consequences. And I think what our paper is showing is that that's also true at business cycle frequencies. So even when there's booms... That's good for people's consumption and income, but it might be bad for their mortality and even if we don 't quite know why, something we should think about as the unintended consequence of economic growth uh, is that it 's not good for everybody's health
0: and Finally, this uh, brings up larger questions about the relationship between uh, GDP and, and human welfare.
2: Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean you know we I think the thing that I want to do in the future, you know what I want to do, inspired by this project that we've wrapped up is is to kind of go beyond GDP and try to think about broader measures of well-being i'm 50 percent health economist that's my self-identif that's my self-identification and and i think one of the things that's missing when when you focus a lot on gdp is is population health and i think there's a lot more room for having conversations you know between the economists and the health economists about ways of combining those together one way i've thought about this if you think about the covid recession is it's probably the worst recession in the history of the country and worse than the great depression because it had both the economic consequences, but it also had terrible health consequences in terms of the life years lost and the excess mortality during the pandemic. If you add all those together, I think the recession is, is really, really bad in a way that you would not see if you were just looking at GDP.
0: It looks like your work raises at least as many questions as answers.
2: Yeah, that's research. <laughs> what I would like to keep doing is trying to incorporate in an analysis of of economic shocks, both the labor market consequences as well as the health consequences. I mean, I think that's a great way of combining my own research interests, but I I think it's quite important. I think when you're trying to make comparisons across people, across economies, across time, if you just look at income and you just look at GDP, uh, I think it might be a very misleading picture uh, if people's health outcomes are also changing at the same time.
0: That was Matt Notowodigdo, professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and co-author of a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper, Lives vs. Livelihoods, The Impact of the Great Recession on Mortality and Welfare. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. What may be the only instance in popular music of a song about the Kondratiev Wave, a theory developed in the 1920s by the Soviet economist Nikolai Kondratiev that posited long, multi-decade waves of boom, bust, depression, and recovery in capitalist economies? with some wars mixed in there, too. This is Ping Pong by Stereolab. Till next week, bye.